Hello and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Tim Miller, in for Charlie Sykes, still on that very well-deserved vacation. Today I got a special double episode for you with two old friends of mine, two very smart Democratic strategists. We're going to start with one and then maybe do a little book talk on the back end. Uh, but my first guest here is Bakari Sellers, who I'm sure you've heard of. He's <laughs> a lawyer, a political commentator, a former state legislator, a political strategist, host of the Bakari Sellers podcast, a father, author of two fabulous books, one for grownups, My Vanishing Country, and one for kids. Who are your people? Bakari, your CV is going to take up our whole window here. Where, where do you find the time, my man? Look, I can tell you that my my number one and two job are being a, a husband and a father, and um, both of those wear me completely out. So <laughs> whatever energy I have left, I try to do other things. The kids' book I ordered, it is so good. Who are your people? I want to get to that at the end if we have just if we have just a minute. Uh, but we got to talk a little politics first. And I wasn't planning on starting with this, but I think given the DOJ response last night, given the fact that you're an actual lawyer, you're not just a hack like me, uh, I, I had to at least get your two cents. Like These images of the top secret documents on the floor in Mar-a-Lago, I mean, maybe it's not a smoking gun, but uh, the, it's, the gun's whistling. Something's happening down there. What, what, what is your take about where this investigation stands at this point? So there are a few things. One, I thought that Donald Trump's lawyers made a misstep, and I'm not sure... Yeah. where they got their advice from. I'm not sure. If cereal box. Was, yeah, I mean, it's probably worse than a cereal box. It's probably <laughs> OWN or whatever that station is called. <laughs> O-A-N, please, Bakari. Have some respect. <laughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. Uh, but, you know, the, the fact that his lawyers asked for a special master, not truly understanding or encompassing, uh, understanding what that encompasses left them open for a very detailed, deliberate, organized response from the Department of Justice and real lawyers laying out aspects of the investigation, which will prove to embarrass Donald Trump, one, but also hurts every other candidate that's running for office now in the midterm election because now they have to respond to the question. And, you know, it's just tough. And and you you saw facts laid out last night for obstruction of justice. Those are the facts that you saw laid out. And I believe, you know, whether or not you are Trump's custodian of records or one of his lawyers, those charges look to be bold. And so we'll see what happens next. But I don't I'm not sure that someone cannot be indicted based upon the filing that we saw last night. And you separate all the bullshit and all the legal mumbo jump out of this and just say, if this was not a former president, right? And, and I think that's like really the crux of the matter, right? If this was you or me or any of our listeners and, and we had documents like this in our desk, desk drawer, you know, we had worked in, in the White House, we'd worked at, you know, at some level in intelligence and had some level of clearance and had, had smuggled documents out of the White House and, and the FBI came banging down our door and it was, you know, sitting in our desk drawer with, the, with our passports, like we'd be going to prison. Correct. The, <laughs> the, there is a bar for a president and right. a, a former president, which does not jive with Merrick Garland, who, by the way, I'm, I'm one of the Democrats who really thinks Merrick Garland's been doing a great job, but yeah. it doesn't jive with no man is above the law. Um, right. The presidents and former presidents are above the law. It, that's a weird statement to make, but they are above the law. The question is, are there laws in this country that they cannot break? Um you know, we're not talking about, you know, rape, DUI, murder, et cetera. Yeah. We're, we're talking about these classified documents and, and obstruction. You know, this isn't the first time that there has been a bold case of obstruction laid out against this president. 
we'll just have to see what happens. I, I don't ever. I mean, I think he's going to be indicted by Fannie Willis in Atlanta, Georgia, but I do not think he'll be indicted by the why? Do, why? Because that's such a clean and clear case. That interference in the election fits squarely in the Georgia statutes and codes of law. I think Lindsey Graham has exposure, which troubles my spirit because I actually I have a hard time with Lindsey Graham's policies and postures, but I actually like him as a human being. And I think that there are a lot of people, including Rudy Giuliani, um, who, are, who have a great deal of criminal exposure in Atlanta. Those charges, indictments, cases will be easier to be beat up on and called a political football than if it was the Department of Justice. But I think there's more criminal exposure there than anywhere else and, and the willingness to indict. Fannie's a badass woman, man. She is a bad woman. And whether or not you're a young thug or Donald Trump, she'll go get you. <laughs> and maybe we need a bulwark profile in Fannie. Uh, my mind's been starting to wander thinking about the Mar-a-Lago perp walk. That's all I'm going to say. I haven't had hope. I haven't had hope. But uh, my mind's been starting to dream a little bit, you know, in my in the Peter Pan moments before I'm falling asleep. Uh, I, I just want to bail you out on Lindsay here for a second with our listeners because I talked about this in yesterday's show. Uh, you're, you're from South Carolina. I didn't mention that in the intro. He's a fun guy. Like this is why the Lindsay thing has been so hard for me, and it was so hard for me to grapple with in the book. I, you know, I loved having Lindsay on the campaign trail with Jeb. He was the only person that lifted our spirits when everybody was coming. The media was coming for us. Donald Trump was shitting on us. You know, we were in last place in the polls, and 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 Lindsay, you know, came on the campaign trail and was really this jolt of energy. Uh, because he does love this stuff. And, and I just think that it's his tragic flaw in the end. Like he loves it too much. And uh, he loved it so much he got himself into a really, really bad situation defending a really bad dude. And, and you know, I, that's just his situation right now. There are a couple of things. First, that, I mean, being on a Jeb Bush campaign, you, you really can't see a man's true character because that was so fucking short. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's true. That's first. That's but true. second, Lindsay for a long period of time was the only one along with Jim Clyburn in South Carolina, who delivered any goods to the state, who did everything from responding to constituents to making sure that our state was taken care of. People forget that for a very long period of time, we had Jim DeMint and Lindsey Graham, right? And you had a you had a legislative delegation that was Jim DeMint, Lindsey Graham, um, Joe Wilson. Yeah, you lie. I mean, yeah, you lie. I mean, we, we had a very, very conservative to the point where they were decently ineffective in helping just regular people in the state live and thrive. And so Lindsey and Jim Clyburn were really all we had. But the best way to describe Lindsey Graham is this. I can't recall what the fish are called, and I don't want to take credit for it. I've heard this a couple of times. Sucker fish? Yeah, it's those fish that that swim around, sharks and whales, et cetera. They are, they're smaller fish, and they always need that big fish. And when John McCain died, Donald Trump became that big fish. And that is just an innate character flaw. And that's what happens. I mean, you know, your parents always tell you, they always tell you, be careful who you hang out with. And, you know, you know, if you hang out with Donald Trump, then you're bound to get fleas. And I just think his other character flaws, he just want he just loves the game, loves being in the mix so much. That's what I kind of wrote about. That's what it comes down to is just he just loves it so much that, you know, it just blinded him to all this other stuff. And all of his values, which might have been real, you know, the, the fact that he actually, unlike Jim DeMint, so these guys wanted to help real people and like believed in immigration reform and wasn't a rate, you know, some of the stuff, like all that stuff was subliminated to like his just desire to be in the mix. But anyway, we could do all day on Lindsay. I, w- I want to talk about with you since since we've, we, we got your time, just some, some areas where you have particularly 
valuable expertise, you know, for our listeners. What one of my hobby horses is you're coming down for South Carolina. You ran for lieutenant governor. A lot of our listeners are kind of red state, you know, either never Trumpers or Democrats. You know, I get emails from them. They're, you yeah. know, in these islands of MAGA where they're trying to deal with it. And like this is my hobby horse. I think the Democrats are doing a particularly bad job of trying to break through in these red states. And when I see things like the way Joe Manchin was treated by like the Democratic elites when when they should have been, you know, throwing flowers at his feet. When I see things like, you know, some of these candidates that get put up who are really hot on Twitter but have no chance to actually win, uh, that frustrates me because for, you know, Democrats to overcome their structural disadvantage, they got to do well in places like South Carolina. So what is, you know, having seen the Harrison thing up close, have you run for yourself? Like, what is your take on like how the Democrats can kind of change, you know, this downward spiral they're in in red America? So that's a big I mean, question. That's we a could, big we question. could have done two hours on this, but you know, yeah, just yeah, a that's minutes. a big question, but let me start here. I don't think Manchin is the best example because I think Manchin was decently an obstructionist and cinema. I think a better example is the fallout you've seen from somebody like Mark Kelly, who had the audacity to say that many of the Republicans he works with are good guys. And you saw Twitter like, oh, my God, I can't believe he's a sellout. And it's like, that's not real life. When I was in the South Carolina legislature, I sat beside Nikki Haley. I served with Tim Scott. Mark Sanford was my governor. Andre Bauer was is a good friend of mine. He was my governor. And um, although he said some crazy shit sometimes when he was running <laughs> for office, you know, ended up, I, you know, I helped him get a job on CNN. I mean, you have to have these relationships. The way that I describe Tim Scott to folk is I would never vote for Tim Scott. But if he needed a kidney, I'd give him one tomorrow. You know, that's just the friendship that we have. I think he would probably say the same thing. But one of the things that Democrats don't do is a lot of times in Republicans, when they when they analyze Democratic struggles in red America, they talk about the way that we speak to folk. Yeah. And I'm not even concerned about the way that we speak to folk. I'm concerned about the fact that we don't speak to folk. I think that this White House has done a poor job of of arming and mobilizing uh, mayors in this country as messengers. For example, Frank Scott at Little Rock or Chokwe in Jackson, and they're having a fucking humanitarian crisis. They don't have any water. Or um, Randall Wolfen in Birmingham, Alabama. Andre Dickens in, in Atlanta, Georgia, or Vi Laos in Charlotte, and just using them. Imagine if you if you wanted to talk about the Infrastructure Reduction Act, for example, and you had this these mayors um, across the country or state legislators across the country, and they're doing, you know, the big hip hop radio station, they're doing a couple of gospel stations, and then they're doing like the conservative talk stations in the afternoon, just telling the message of what's in the pieces of legislation and how this will help everyday Americans. Even Barack Obama is weird. He was a very good orator, very good orator, but they didn't communicate well about pieces of legislation and successes they've had. And Democrats are doing the same thing again. And it's so frustrating. I mean, our best messengers, I mean, I, I told, I interviewed Marty Walsh this morning on my podcast. I was like, dude, the fact that you're not on TV on Sunday morning shows selling just the jobs numbers or selling the Infrastructure Reduction Act or selling student loan um, forgiveness is completely absurd. And it's a, like an unforgivable, unforced error. And that's what we do. We have to do a better job of just meeting people where they are and actually having conversations. I'm not talking about people get mad over pronouns because they're insensitive or they don't, just don't understand. They get mad over things like Latinx, which is patently absurd because 
Hispanics don't even use that term. But I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about just actually beginning the conversation, which is something we don't do. One thing I saw on this, you know, our friend, our mutual friend Lily Adams, who, you know, worked for Kamala, works, was working for the administration, did a tweet that just caught my eye yesterday. And it was that in the infrastructure bill, there's 47 million, I'm going from memory, this number might be off slightly, in rural broadband that Arkansas uh, is going to use to deliver broadband to 5,500 houses. Now, that was remarkable to be on two fronts. Like, one is, is exactly what you're talking about. Like, where is it? How are they getting this message? It's nice she sent that tweet, but how are we getting this message into rural America and talking about how the Republicans are obstructionists? And two, I also, we'll talk about student loans in a second, but I also laughed about that in the context of the student loan debate. You don't, you don't hear, you know, people drinking their turmeric lattes in, in New Jersey complaining about the fact that uh, it's unfair that Arkansas, that the people out there in the boonies are getting this deal using their hard-earned tax dollars. But, uh, it shows a little bit of an imbalance in our in our grievance politics. But isn't that like potentially, you know, something that, that felt like it was a missed opportunity? No question. The infrastructure, I mean, rather, yeah. Democrats rather win Twitter than win middle America. Like it's the it's it's fucking weird. But Mayor Pete gets it. Yeah. Marty gets it. Let me push back on you on Mansion though. What's wrong with Joe? Like you, you lump Mansion with Cinema, and I get that. But Cinema is Arizona. Joe Biden won Arizona. Okay, so like, I, you know, I, I don't understand Kristen Cinema at all, and I totally understand every <laughs> every critique of her. Right? That's, That's Joe, Joe Biden won twenty nine percent in West Virginia. It's a miracle that Joe Mansion is there. My question is, isn't that Joe Manchin is doing what you're talking about? Like he is talking to, you know, real West Virginians concerns and, and maybe it's BS sometimes or you don't agree with everything he's saying, but he's at least getting through to them. Like what's the I other model you know, besides him to win in a place like West Virginia or South Carolina? What's the other model? Don't you need a Joe Manchin in South Carolina? Unquestionably. I don't want to kick Joe Manchin out the party. I just think that he's decently an obstructionist. I don't think that he <laughs> I think that his model is, is does not truly represent the values of poor I mean West Virginia is literally one of the poorest states in the union. I mean, I think we can agree upon that. And many things that are done to preserve, uplift and help poor Americans, he stood in the way of for some reason or another. But I don't want to get rid of Joe Manchin. I just want to elect 52 United States senators so Joe Manchin is not the president of the United States. I mean, and that's not a difficult thing to do. All you have to do is win every state that, um, if we win every state that Joe Biden won in in, in 2020, that's 52 United States senators. So, you know, that is what I want to do. I think Joe Manchin's voice is powerful. I think it's important. I just don't agree with him philosophically or politically. Yeah, but uh, there has to be room within inside the party f- party for that. I guess is what I'm saying. And I just don't see any effort, you know, to go out there and recruit people that can win in, statewide in some of these places. And maybe that's hopeless. I don't know. But it wasn't that long ago that Mark Pryor and Heidi Heitkamp were in, and maybe that's just a different different era. But but anyway, it seems like there could be a better job of recruiting. That that's related to my other thing I want to talk to you about, which is just this Democratic bench writ large. And I think that there's a top-level question to the bench and sort of an underneath that. You've talked about the underneath that a bit with the mayors. But, you know, Joe Biden is is an old man. I don't th- think we need to, you know, kind of get into handicapping no, whether or not he he's going to run again. But let's yeah, de- let's debate if he's, he's old or He's not. up there. He's <laughs> up there. So he might run again. He might not. Let's just table that for a second. Let's say that, you know, for whatever reason, he's unable to run. You used to advise Kamala. I don't have anything against Kamala. I went to her announcement. I, I wrote about that for the Bulwark. I, I like I like some of the people that worked for her. She seems to like be in her head or something. I don't know what's happening in her interviews. She seems to be in her head. And and so then after Kamala, you start to look around and it and the bench does feel a little light. Like what's your assessment of that 
if something happened to Joe Biden, let, let's put, I don't want to ask you to predict, but let's just pretend something happens to him. <laughs> Jesus, what? you went from you went from bad to perverse. Yeah, we're dark. We're getting dark here. We're getting dark here. Okay, what 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 happens? Where where are we? What's your take on the state of play? If the question is asked, who is next? Maybe that's the way we frame it. Okay, the, the bench is stronger than people think it is. The bench start also naming names, baby. Start naming names. Oh, I am. So I think Sherrod Brown is a hell of a candidate. I think Amy Klobuchar is a hell of a candidate. I think Gavin Newsom is the most talented politician in the world. All you got to okay. do is ask him. Um, <laughs> right. The second half of the statement <laughs> rebutted the first. But OK, let's move on. <laughs> I think Mitch Landrieu is interesting. I think Marty's interesting. I think Kamala, of course, is the front runner. Elizabeth Warren is old, but still a very interesting candidate. So, I mean, I think you have individuals, you're always going to have some businessman or somebody who's richer than God who jumps out there too. There's no Barack's but, on that list. There's no former President Obama's on that well, list. Well, shit. I mean, you name. can't name another Barack Obama in history other than maybe JFK. That's an unfair metric. Okay. But I mean, I do think that when you look at the landscape, you'll have, you know, three or four more than qualified United States senators who can step up to the plate and run. Chris Murphy, he's kind of a one issue guy. It's a huge issue. I, we would have to see him flesh that out a little bit. Um, I know he's more than one issue, but people from the outside would think he's a one issue guy. And then that's not even getting into the governors that you have. I mean, think about the governor of North Carolina, for example, who has that ability to um, be somebody who can speak to the same voters we were talking about. I don't think John Bell Edwards can do it as a pro-life governor. Um, no, but Cooper's you have a good VP candidate, though, but he's not going to be the nominee. I mean, I love Jared no, Polis in Colorado, but that's a tough thing. That's he, tough. I mean, look, you, the governor of North Carolina is somebody who can stand on any stage and hold his own. I mean, I, I'm not under any illusion that he will be. I mean, I think it's Kamala's to lose. Um, can she get her sea legs back? You don't. Know, I don't want to get you in trouble. You agree with that? It's it, it, sometimes it's felt a little bit like she's just in her head a little bit. I don't no, know. No, I agree with you, and I think that you know, oftentimes it's just you know, it, it's it's kind of the way that she governs, which is to solicit a lot of opinions. When sometimes you just want her to kind of make that decision, but she is, she's very comforting. Um, there's also a great deal of of. Um, kind of a, a double standard that she's going to that she's going to face the same double standard that Nikki Haley's going to face is the same double standard that Hillary Clinton faced which is you know just having a woman run for the highest office in the land uh, there are people who still are not progressive enough to truly understand what that means and that's unfortunate I guess but I mean Dan Quayle and Mike Pence were white dudes and they struggled in the VP slot right <laughs> they didn't get oh, no, 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 that's not what I'm, I, I agree with you no 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 I was just talking about when they run for president oh you mean at the next level I think I think the 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 major issue she had was a portfolio at, at first that was decently unwinnable you give somebody voting rights act and and immigration I mean that's yeah. that's tough um, but now you see her on the road. You see her getting out. I don't think there's I, I don't think that there's any doubt that the correlation between Kamala Harris being outside of uh, D.C. and talking to voters more and the president's rise and uptick in approval ratings. Uh, there is a there is a direct correlation. between. you really those think things. that? Yeah, it's interesting. Okay, I want to put you in the hot seat here. We're going to do four minutes on this for our listeners' sake. I'm sure you have these people in your life, Bukhari, Democrats, liberals, who are just like, what in the fuck is happening with these conservatives? And they come to the bulwark, some former conservative, you know, some former Republicans, so I could at least get a hint, you know, they could at least get a hint of what the, you know, their crazy uncle is thinking at the dinner table. And then, uh, you know, so they're all happy with us when we're talking about Trump and 
all happy about us when we're talking about how much I love Mayor Pete and et cetera. But then, then, then issues start to come up and they're like, whoa, these guys are still conservatives. They don't like this student loan buyout. So uh, they get a little cranky. So I want you to you know, help make the case for this because almost all of us have been ranging from skeptical to hostile to the, to the student loan move by, by the president. Uh, and our, our main complaints are that just the targeting of it is horrible. The cost is outrageous, and uh, the uh, you know he doesn't. It's not really legal. So you know, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln. But <laughs> how would you? You could take any of those three complaints, and how'd you make the case for it? So there, there are a few things. The first is just the politics of it. You heard the clamoring from both the left and the right. And one of the one of the political things I don't necessarily understand is if you are going to do this and be criticized for it, why not go big? And so I think that's one of the concerns from the left. Do you share that yeah. concern? Huh? Do you share that concern? Um, I, I just think politically somebody has to explain that to me. Um, if they're going to hang it around your neck like an albatross, you might as well do twenty-five dollars or $50,000. Seems pretty um, big to me. I don't know. It's a half, half trillion bucks. It's going um, to end up costing us. <laughs> it's not a half trillion bucks. It's 200, uh, 200, yeah, we'll see. It's 200 billion. But, you know, he is taking 1.5 trillion off the deficit. So instead of 1.5 trillion, it's 1.3, which goes to your cost. And even if you say that it's uh, half a trillion, instead of taking 1.5, it's still a trillion dollar reduction in the deficit from where we were. I think when I spoke to Marty Walsh this morning, he explained it probably the best. I said, how do you explain this to the to your folk in the bar back in Boston? And he said, this is about helping people. This is targeted help to folk who otherwise don't have an opportunity to write a thirty, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollar check. And the unique thing is the overarching majority of people that this is going to benefit are poor, black, and brown. If you think about the the up to twenty thousand for individuals who are on Pell Grants. I mean, Pell Grants, those individuals many times are first-generation college students whose family cannot afford for them to go to school. And they take out these loans that have extremely high interest rates and most times are strangled because of it. I mean, I've paid my student loans off. Thank God my wife actually helped me. It took me, I graduated college when I was 20 and I just paid them off last year. So when I was 36, my my student loan payments at one point in time were like $2,400 a month. But I did everything this country asked me to do. I went to college. I went to law school and, you know, tried to be a productive taxpaying citizen and, you know, still not being able to afford a car or a house because of that amount of money that you have to pay in your student loans. I think that if there is a criticism that can be lobbied against Joe Biden for trying to help lift up individuals from poverty to the middle classes, there should be more done to help cap costs when it comes to higher education. Yeah. But I think that can be done as well. I push back on folk who were like, oh my God, I can't believe that you know we're we're doing this. This is money out of my pocket to go do something else. Well, you know, so so were stimulus checks, so were the GI Bill, so was PPP loans. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So it was all of us in high income blue states paying for, you know, trying to fix the Jackson water situation that's going on right now because Mississippi doesn't invest in anything, right? I, I, I agree with you on that side. The, un, the unfairness argument is bullshit. It is bullshit. And, and I, it's just, you know, it's, it's the, the red states are the taker states and the blue states are the giver states. I, I, you know, and th- this stuff gets out in the wash. My problem. I can't. I just want you to know before you ask me a question, I can't answer. I don't know about the the constitutionality and legality of it because 
You're a lawyer. I've never actually looked at it. You're a lawyer. I I think we can stipulate that it's a pretty preposterous legal defense, but no, I'm not going to ask you about that. My other, what I want to push back on, I want to ask you this, and then I want to get to the kids' book, then then we'll let you go. Is I agree with you. I I I have sympathy and and for and this is are not my party episode this week. It's about this, like for people, particularly black and brown folks or working class white folks that were told they should go to college. College wasn't for them. Like they took out a big loan. You know, they were there for a year or two or three years. And like, it just, it didn't work for them. And so then they went and took another job, right? And they worked at a restaurant or they, you know, you know, did what, whatever it was that didn't require that degree. And now they got this debt hanging over them. I, I, I'll hear you. But why then? Why not put those people forward? And and so when I when I complain, say, well, why not go bigger? Well, then maybe why not give more money to people who are making less? Like, why are we giving ten thousand dollars to people that are making one hundred and twenty grand? You know, at entry level jobs at, at white shoe law firms or at Google. Like, why are they you know getting this? A on the policy merits, but B isn't that politically just stupid? Isn't that a gift to Republicans letting them parody who's getting this bailout? But that's also not the overarching majority of individuals who will be getting this. I mean, it's it's it is decently targeted. And I'm, is it is it one twenty five for a household or a person? Two fifty for a household, one twenty five for a person. Yeah, one twenty five for a person, two fifty four now. I mean, personally, if I was president, I wouldn't even target it because they're going to criticize you anyway. I personally believe, and I've argued this to many economists, I think that the student loan bubble is going to be the next bubble that bursts because it's untenable. But I, again, I don't. I think we are at a place where we're nitpicking the fact that we're trying to help people and lift more people out of poverty into the middle class. And when it's done elsewhere, I didn't hear these same Republicans making this argument um, when we gave trillions of dollars to um, businesses with some of the, the largest tax cuts we've seen in the history of this country, thinking that it was going to trickle down. But instead, they did stock buybacks, right? I mean, proven fact. And it's kind of wild to watch these arguments be made when we're talking about the person. And while I get, I hear you at the white shoe law firms, I would push back and say you're mad with you know 10% of the individuals that make it. I'm talking about the teachers. I'm talking about the the individuals who go in to be a postal worker. I'm talking about the people who are just starting out and they're an accountant or uh, a salesman or whatever it may be. I mean. This $10,000 is helping out a shit ton of people. I mean, I, I didn't get it. I mean, I wish I did, but <laughs> I, I'm not going to. And I just I just find it weird that, like, I, I just look at America vastly different. If other people reap the benefit of something that I do not, I give them a round of applause. I don't sit here and say, oh, fuck, that should have been me. I say we should try to lift because Poverty is a motherfucker. And I say we should try to get as many people out of it as possible. Man, I love having you on here. I, I just, I, I know we got to go, but I just want to mention your kid's book, uh, Who Are Your People? It, it's so good. And I just, I'd love for you just to talk about it briefly. I, I, I know this is my privilege, my privilege bubble, but and before we adopted my daughter, I just, it just, the kid's book situation did not, didn't even occur to me, like, <laughs> right? Like there's no, yeah. like it's just very hard for her to see people like her in kids books. Like every kids book I'm reading is like, you know, dad and a mom, and that's ever it's all these white kids, and it's changing, it's changing. But I think this stuff is so important, and and so I, I'm so I'm happy you're doing it. So I just, why don't you just share this, like why you decided to do it, and, and what you know what you've taken away from the process? Yeah, I mean, no, the representation. Um, you see, you hit the nail on the head when you begin to look around and try to you know, get something that resembles you, your family or your children, ain't a whole lot of options. So I decided to write it myself. And breaking into the kids book industry, literally, I had to be a New York Times bestseller in adult books to get the opportunity to write a kids book. 
but it's just, it's fascinating. And, and I actually have on one of my pages, it's a cookout, it's a family cookout. And I actually have uh, a gay couple and there was an Amazon comment that was like, I did not buy this book for this purpose, blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, man, fuck you. Like, <laughs> it's just like, you know, you want to show, you want to show people diversity. You want to show people strength. And it was just, it was two dudes holding hands at a family picnic and cookout. That That's just representative of who we are and hopefully representative of the love that comes off the pages of that book. And I just want my kids to be able to grow up and, and be loved and to love unconditionally um, and be able to to actually pursue life, liberty, and happiness. That's my goal. Yeah, man, it's, it is so hard. I, I started to look into it, and I, I, I think your, your book is great because it addresses these issues head on. Who are your people? The other thing, maybe it's something we have to do together because it is hard to break through. Uh, even being a New York Times bestseller, just kind of just brag right now. We can just joint brag. It's three New York Times bestsellers on this podcast. But even <laughs> still, it's hard. My pitch is like, I would like to see some books like just feature these kinds of families that don't actually go into their trauma. <laughs> I, I think it's great that you address their trauma head on, but I'd love to be able to read a kid's book to my kid at night. That's just like, Hey, just two dads and a, and a, <laughs> a black daughter. And we're just, you know, going to the park, right? Like yeah. uh, we're just, li- we're just living our life or, you know, like it's not uh, just like all the other books are. I feel like every time I get one of these books is also about the trauma. So I think that's important. That's not a critique, but I think now that's the next step. Now that you're already out there through your people, maybe that's the next book. I got you, man. Thank you for having me, brother. Hey, dude, thank you so much for doing it. Um, that is Bakari Sellers. You can see him on the Bakari Sellers podcast. I want everybody to stick around. Uh, we have a writer's lounge with my friend Liz Smith coming up next. Uh, but first, a brief interlude for my pals at Acid Tongue. Welcome back to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Tim Miller here with my old friend, Liz Smith. Before we get to Liz, I just want to uh, shout out two things. One, I forgot to mention it in the Bakari segment of this, but he had a longer podcast discussion about uh, his memoir, Our Vanishing Country, with Charlie, maybe about a year and a half ago. And it was so good. It was one of my favorite episodes of Charlie's podcast of all time. So if you did not hear it, I would encourage you to go back and check that out. Just search for it uh, in the Bulwark Podcast archives. And secondly, today's Wednesday's pod. Every Wednesday for Bulwark Plus members, we have a podcast uh, called The Next Level, which is me and Sarah and JVL. Me and Sarah talk about gay shit. Me and JVL talk about sports. You know, So if you need a little bonus Bulwark love and you're not a member of Bulwark Plus, you're missing out on that. So that's something that uh, I hope you sign up for. What's coming up here, me and Liz, going to talk about our New York Times bestselling books, and uh, just about the writing process, a little bonus. And before that, I want just a little bit of Liz's smart political analysis. So Liz, welcome back to the Bulwark Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be joined by a fellow New York Times bestselling author. <laughs> Three of us. Three of us. Vakari. <laughs> Big moment for all of us. Um, I want to just do fun writing stuff for a few minutes. But but first, me and Vakari were talking about how the Democrats can do better in penetrating into wet red states. Um, and, you know, there was this moment, uh, you know, in our political life, uh, you worked for some of these people where Claire McCaskill was senator in Missouri and Heidi Heitkamp, my husband worked for in North Dakota. 
and and you know there's so few and far between right now um bakari was making the case basically that democrats need to do a better job of not how they talk but just actually talking to rural america uh using you know mayors and uh, uh going on to fox which i know something you're a fan of that to me seems like a necessary but not sufficient answer like what is your take having let's having worked in ohio kentucky south dakota missouri you've got street cred here what what's Let's just kibitz about that. Oh, God. One of my favorite topics. So, <laughs> and, and frankly, it's something that's really, really important. Um, and I think something that Democrats are paying more attention to now than they have in the recent history, because, you know, there was a sort of flawed view on the left, right, which is that we should only be trying to run up the score in Democratic areas or in blue states and that, you know, red areas, rural voters were sort of a lost cause. But, um, you know, obviously you can't be a majority party if that's your worldview. I think to what you were saying about um, Bakari's comments, it's a mixture of tactics and tone slash message. And in terms of tactics, yes, it's really important to make sure that you are going everywhere. That means going on media outlets where you'll reach right-leaning or Republican voters, whether it's Fox News or you know, right-leaning radio, which in a lot of these states, people still listen large to, you know, terrestrial radio still has a massive, massive audience. And that's oftentimes overlooked by, you know, folks like maybe you and me who live in New York and Oakland. So I, I think, think people even, this is the thing, we're so out of touch. I think people even listen to terrestrial radio in Oakland still. Yeah. I mean, this is it's an important point. Like when was the last time you don't see this, right? Like Democratic candidates like going on to conservative talk radio and trying to engage or promote. We were, me and Bakar talking about the infrastructure thing, right? Like that's a perfect thing going to Iowa farm radio to talk about, right? And like you, do, you don't see that a lot. Yeah, exactly. And I, going on Fox News sort of gets a lion's share of attention just because I think it's a sexier topic. But any successful Democrat um, in a red state or, or a state that has a lot of rural areas should understand the importance of hitting terrestrial radio. But also, it's really important tactically to go everywhere and go to every county and not just think that you can win a state like Ohio by running up the margin in the three C's. You you know, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Columbus. It's sort of like an insidery term there. But even Barack Obama understood this, and that's how he was able to win Ohio in 2008 and 2012, was he knew that part of the recipe for winning is that you cut into Republican margins in rural areas. You don't go to a super red area because you expect to win it, but you go there because you know that um, if you can cut enough counties from, you know, 80-20 Republican-Democrat to 65-35 Republican-Democrat, that could be the margin of victory itself. Yeah. That could be the game changer. And um, we are seeing a lot of Democrats right now sort of adopting that strategy, whether it's Mark Kelly in Arizona, Raphael Warnock in Georgia, um, you know, Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is not, I mean, I guess you would say it's sort of a purple Bully state. I mean, Trump won it in 2016. Hmm. Right. Pat Toomey still is a, right. a U.S. senator there. But yes. So, you know, those are all candidates who really sort of who really get it and understand you have to go everywhere. But tone and message is really important. And 
again, I would point to all of these candidates as candidates who are making sure that they're uh, reaching out to Republicans, uh, unveiling groups like Republicans for Mark Kelly, Republicans for Josh Shapiro, Republicans for Raphael Warnock. And sure, there are people in the online left who have you know never spent a day in a red state who, who are very critical of that strategy and think that, um, you know, that if we're not calling Republicans Nazis and fascists and Bolsheviks or whatever every day, that, that that's a communications failure on the part of Democrats. But that's just wrong. And I think Mark Kelly, Shapiro, Warnock, they've been very, very smart in giving Republicans space to come over to their side and to show them that they're welcome on the Democratic side of the aisle. And it's a really, really important thing tonally, message-wise, for Democrats to do. And that's really the only way that we're going to be able to win states like those in um, a midterm election like this, but also maybe expand the playing field uh, in elections to come. Yeah, one more on this. Because for me, I think on the issue standpoint, there's two things that the Democrats should be max, maxing out on this. And we may have talked about infrastructure and, and rural broadband and actually beating their chest about that and talk about how Republicans uh, have... Um, uh, been been blocking, you know, mostly blocked that some voted for it, but but mostly were you know actually impeding efforts to expand rural broadband. So you can talk about that if you want. But Bakari and I covered that. But the other thing I want to hear from you about is abortion. I think it's underappreciated. Like the abortion view is not a monolith out in right. rural America, right? And Trump attracted a lot of frankly pro-choice, secular, you know, uh, working class whites that live in, you know, rural Ohio where you've worked or, or industrial Ohio, maybe more accurately than rural Ohio, that didn't like the abortion hardline positions, the Republicans in the past. Trump seemed like a softer that helped their transition, this famous Obama Trump voter from the diners that everyone hears so much about. So isn't that an issue? And maybe you're already seeing that in the polls. Like, What's your take on how Democrats can use that issue to kind of wedge Republicans in these communities? Oh, I mean, it's a huge opportunity, and we've seen that in some of the uh, elections, um, whether it was in Kansas and upstate New York recently. These are not places that you associate with being socially liberal, right? It's not San Francisco or the West (laughs) Village or Oakland or wherever you live. And I think what it speaks to is that there is a a very large silent majority that is opposed to what has now become the mainstream position of the Republican Party. I mean, when you when you and I were working against each other in 2012, it was shocking when you had candidates like Todd Akin and Richard Murdoch say things like, you know, pregnancy from rape was a gift from God or that legitimate rape wouldn't lead to pregnancy. And those are seen as complete outliers of positions in the Republican Party. Yeah, we stopped supporting Todd Akin. I was at the RNC at the time. We took in the very end, the NRSC went back in for him, but the RNC stopped giving him money over that. That's a position of like most Republicans now is the Todd Akin position. Exactly. And if you look at what, yeah, whether it's Doug Mastriano, Tudor Dixon, um, it, it is the mainstream position. And um, to date, a lot of the focus has been on how it's galvanized Democrats who might have otherwise sat on their hands during the election, or it's maybe brought some of those suburban swing voters back into the fold. But I think that you're exactly right, that this um, 
is going to be an alienating issue for some of those, you know, non-college educated, secular, uh, white Trump voters that people thought were just, you know, forever gone to the Republicans. Um, Because the reality is that most Americans exist somewhere in, in a gray area in terms of their views on abortion. And the positions that the Republican Party and the mainstream of the Republican Party have have endorsed don't allow for any gray, right? It's it's abortion ban with no exceptions. So no exceptions for rape, incest, health, or life with a mother. And, um, you know, the stories that are coming out of some of these states are absolutely horrifying. Um, but I think that a lot of voters are now put in a position that they never really foresaw, right? You could, it's easy to say you're pro-life when you just expect Roe v. Wade to be the law of the land forever. But when this is actually on the ballot and you have people running for office who will be in a position where they can ban abortion in all exceptions, it's you know less of a theoretical argument and it's as close to a life and death matter for voters as you can get. So I think Republicans really miscalculated how this was going to play out for them. You know, for 50 years, they've been, um, you know, sort of agitating and pushing toward this end. But, you know, now I'm going to repeat what so many other people have said. They are like the dog that caught the car. And for the first time in my lifetime, the energy on this issue is on my side. It's on the pro-choice side. And that is something that is completely ahistorical. And I think that is going to come back to bite the Republicans in the ass. All right. Um, I want to move on to book stuff. But uh, last thing, I'm sure we have a lot of listeners here that, you know, want to take out the most extreme uh, Republicans who are pushing this sort of stuff. Do Do you have favored candidates? I know sometimes it's hard for you know, normies who aren't following this day to day to kind of distinguish between the fake hype candidates and the ones that like have a real chance. So should you have anybody you want to pimp out before we move on to a little writer's lounge? Yes. Mark Kelly, he's going to be in a tough race, but he's just an incredible candidate, incredible bio and running the type of race that you want um, in a purple state. Tim Ryan is a good friend of mine, and that's a little bit more of an uphill of a race, but my God, J.D. Vance is just, he's a horrific candidate. He's a complete fraud. He has the work ethic of a three-toed sloth. And (laughs) I, I, I just can't imagine, like between Blake, as much as I love Mark Kelly and Tim Ryan, I just cannot stand Blake Masters and J.D. Vance. And I would love to see them get spanked at the polls because, I mean, those guys, those guys cannot raise a dollar. They are completely reliant on Peter Thiel. And there's they just have the most like punchable faces. And I just I I really want to see them go down. Blake Masters, have you been listening to the next level or are we just united? I said that exact same thing. I mean, that's sort of how I feel about J.D. Vance, but they're just such smug assholes. And I, you just want to ro- just wipe the, the smirks off their faces. So those two candidates are ones I really, really, really would love to see Democrats take out. Um, yeah, just to clear the record here, I would not like to see J.D. Vance get spanked. <laughs> um, I would like to see him lose. So I thought this would be fun. We had a little bonus time when we were looking at the podcast, and I thought, no, you and I have both, we like went through this writing process together. Liz wrote Any Given Tuesday, which has been out about a month now. 
and you started writing a little before me, but not much before. And, you know, so we were both pitching books at the same time. We were writing at the same time. We were going through crises at not usually the same time, which was nice so that we could lean on one another. So I thought it'd be fun just kind of reflect on that. People out there who are interested in this sort of thing behind the curtains of this. So like, just take it like, why did you decide that you didn't have to do this, right? Like you could have you know, uh, I'm sure that you, uh, I know that you created some maybe tensions by revealing some things um, about past colleagues and, and past clients, past people that you worked for. So like, why did you decide to do it? Why did you decide to do the kind of thing that like showed so much leg? Because this book, this before you answer that question, it, it is fun. It, it is, there's some definitely some similarities to mine, um, but it is, there, there's some differences in that Liz was just so in the mix with these, with so many candidates, and 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 you know, there is just this kind of personal element to you know uh, all of your your sort of stories and reflections that is just really honest and sincere and juicy. And so, anyway, why what t- t- tell the listeners like why you decided to do that? I mean, you could have done it. You could have just done a Mayor Pete is great book and probably sold a sold a bunch of copies <laughs> too. Well, thank you. And and I think I've loved all the stories that have been written um, saying that our books are sort of great companion pieces. And so for anyone that's read my book but hasn't read Tim's, they should absolutely read Tim's book. Although I I assume everyone who listens to The Bulwark has read your book. And I don't know, actually. I see the book scan numbers and I see the podcast numbers and I do think there are a few stragglers out there. And uh, and eventually I'm going to get big data to figure out who it is and I'm going to start calling you one by one. One. So I do, do think there are sti- a few stragglers. Do you still check like book sale numbers and things like that? I maybe, maybe refresh Amazon far less often than I used to, but occasionally from time to time, I've been known uh, to do it. I am, I am still a certain type of addict. Um, so <laughs> yes, um, I, you know, I just don't have the bandwidth really to do that, but, um, what, for why I decided to write this, I, it's safe to say, I never, ever thought I would write a book. I mean, I live such an itinerant lifestyle, as I write about in my book. I have ADD, ADHD that no man-made medication can contain. And it just didn't seem like something that was really in the cards for me. But then the global pandemic hit. And I got approached by a couple different agents right after Pete's campaign about writing it. And I thought, you know what? My God, if, if there's ever a time that I'm going to be able to sit down, focus and write a book, it's right now. And it was like, you know, not that I'm a religious person, but if there were a sign from above that it was my time to write a book, it was right then. Um, and, but like, I was very clear when I set out to write this. That I'm sorry I, to interrupt. I just have to tell you something very disturbing. That's yeah. a pretty similar quote to why Don Jr. said that he <laughs> decided to write his book Triggered in the Alex Holder documentary that I had to watch for our interview yesterday. So I'm just saying that there might be a lot of differences between you and Don Jr., but maybe your ADHD wavelength is like maybe there's something there. Sorry to freak you out with that parallel. Yeah, dude, Tim, my comment, I think, was hopefully people can listen to it as firmly (laughs) tongue-in-cheek. But um, so, but like, I and I was very upfront when I started writing this, you know, with my agent um, and eventually, you know, with my publisher that like, I didn't want to write your typical political book. One, I didn't write want to write some dry political science book. I also didn't want to write a book where, um, you know, 
I'm the hero in every scene or the politicians I work for are the heroes in every scene. I wanted to write something that sort of reflects who I am as a person, which is a little dishy, a little gossipy. Yeah, I'm smart. I have the experience of working in politics, but I wanted to have some fun with the book and really um, pull back the curtain for people. And from the get-go, I knew that that would mean, you know, writing a book that was a little titillating in both good and bad ways and that it would involve pissing some people off. But keep in mind, as I'm writing this book, right, I thought this book was going to start and end with, you know, the triumph of working for Pete Buttigieg and how everyone had underestimated me and underestimated him and how it had redeemed my faith in politics. And then a year into the pandemic, I started advising Andrew Cuomo on his, um, he called me in to help advise him when he was accused of sexual harassment. And my book took a very sharp turn, but I think frankly, one that was like important for it because um, it added sort of a realistic bookend to the Pete thing, which is that politics isn't all puppies and rainbows and that um, to the you know title, Any Given Tuesday, that you can go from what is the biggest professional triumph of your career to something that is one of the biggest professional lows. Um, and so it was full of ups and downs, but... Did you ever think, think about scrapping it because you didn't want to deal with the Cuomo stuff? No, absolutely not. I actually... No. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, come on. No, it's... it's Like, I can't say it was my favorite part to write um, and or m- my favorite part to live and experience, but... And especially, it, it you know, Cuomo resigned with the... Uh, I think five days before my dad passed away. So I was dealing with so much when I'm writing my book and, uh, you know, I tackle all this stuff in my book. And, um, you know, one thing I would say is writing about Cuomo and all that stuff was a lot easier than, uh, writing, having to write about my dad passing away. So that's one silver lining, I guess, in all of this was that I did have the perspective of, what real tragedy feels like. And it's not, you know, a governor resigning. So was that the hardest part? That's another question I was going to ask for you. Like, what did you, what was, was the hardest part of the process trying to write it through dealing with that with your dad? Or was there another, did you have a, was a writer's block part? Like what were the hardest parts of the writing process? Yeah. And you and I talked about this. The writer's block was awful. And where you just sit in front of your computer for hours. And for me, sometimes just days, just staring at a blank page being like, I, I just can't write. I can't write anything. I don't know how I'm going to finish this book. And it's very, very frustrating. And, you know, you've got to learn how to sort of walk away from the computer. You know, for me, I, I took up running, road running a lot. Um, and that really helped me clear my head. So that was good. But uh, writing about a lot of the personal stuff, um, especially, uh, the end of my dad's life was easily the hardest part of the book because how do you write about something so personal, but, um, so profound. And I, that was, so that was very difficult to me because I wanted to do him justice and, do the the whole situation justice but at the same time you know i it's really hard to write like you're sitting there and trying to put into words the hardest thing that you've ever gone through so th- i would say in different ways 
um, those are my biggest challenges. Yeah, that's the good stuff, though, right? I mean, honestly, I, the, that was the for me probably the hardest part of the book to write is what ma- is what I hope makes you feel so gratified by it in the end, right? Because uh, you know it made it not this kind of frivolous. Right. You know, political book or two-dimensional political book, right? I mean, that's the the hard parts of life are the parts that have gravity to them, right? And um, anyway, I, I don't know. I, I, is that you know? Is there what what yeah. is, what has it been like now that it's been printed to kind of like reflect back on all that and like what kind of feedback? Well, I think it's interesting that both you and I do incorporate a lot of our personal stories into our books, um, which I think is really, really important to do because personal downs, yeah, <laughs> like our personal oh. mistakes, right? No, I just want right. to be like, yeah, story true, but like mistakes, it's easy to write about the good parts of your story, but uh, which, you know, you, we both do some, but like the, the mistakes or that's where the, the learning happens. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and I, I, I think it's just important to, um, incorporate the personal broadly because to show people that we're not just like these two-dimensional characters, I think that most people's concept of like political operatives, political strategists, whatever you want to call us, is that we are these two-dimensional characters that are either, you know, extremely evil and conniving or on the other end, extremely hapless and inept. Um, it's like the or only... super earnest. There's a third category, just super earnest. Yeah. Right. So it's like you're either a character in the West Wing right. or Veep or House of Cards, nice. right? Yeah. So there are three archetypes. And I think we both did a good job of showing, no, it's like, you know, that everyone who works in politics is actually pretty complex. But it was important for me to talk about my mistakes and the mistakes candidates that I work for made so that people could sort of learn from them. But also because I don't think anyone people can smell bullshit. They can they can read, they can see right through the bullshit on the page. If um, like give me a break. When when I've seen some of the excerpts from Jared Kushner's book, and again, he but he's the hero of every freaking story in his book. Yeah. And I'm sorry, that's just not credible. That's not gonna be credible to people. Um, and you know, it 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 really sort of sucks to write and know that um, you know thousands and thousands of people are going to read about you talking about some of the biggest professional mistakes you made, but how else are you going to be credible? You know? Um, and And so I think that was important to do. In a lot of ways, I thought it was cool that you did it in particular. I felt like I had to do it for a little bit of a different, for the similar reason about that credibility, but for a a slightly different reason is that I then go on and eviscerate people, (laughs) right? (laughs) For their motivations in the second half of the book. And I was like, I can't just go and talk about how Ryan's Priebus is a needy bitch. And like, without like talking about the times that I've been a needy bitch, right? Like that, like otherwise then what, you know, what is this? There's no credibility to this, you know, and there's no growth, right? There's nothing that, that people can grab onto. Like you, I think could have, you know, skated over that. Like, what? How did you? I, I guess both in your, going through your own mistakes and then some of the gossipy stuff. Like, how did you decide, you know, what to keep in, what to leave out? You know, I mean, because uh, obviously, I don't think you put every single thing in the book. No. So I think you and I probably talked to some of the same people when we were starting the process of writing our books and. um 
you know, people who have written political books in the past, and I'm going to protect their identities. <laughs> but uh, the best piece of advice I got for writing sort of a political memoir, and I hate the the term memoir. It sounds sort of douchey. And I people are like, too. I hate it whenever oh, in any review, I was like, oh, don't call it a memoir. Uh, yes. Um, but uh, it, so the best advice I got was, one, be honest. Um, two, don't pull any punches because readers will be able to tell when you pull punches. Uh, th- three... Don't be gratuitous, though. You know, you you don't want to pull any punches, but you don't want to be gratuitous because people can tell if you're being, you know, overly mean or overly snarky, and they're not going to like that. I probably Um, failed lesson three on the Sean Spicer chapter. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But but some of it was fairly delicious to read. (laughs) But then four was that if you're going to light other people on fire, you have to be willing to light yourself on fire. And I know that you talked about that in a bunch of your interviews. I've talked about that in my interviews, but it is a big credibility thing. And so I just always tried to find that line of not pulling punches and not being gratuitous. And in parts of my book, I think I really walked that fine line. Certainly, I think in the part about Bill de Blasio, right? Mm Because it's so hard not to be gratuitous about someone like that. And you can just imagine the stories that that could be written about a guy like that. Um, so that was one, that was one chapter where, um, my editor just sort of stayed on me and was like, let's, let's just watch the tone here a little bit. But, you know, it's just like with anything, when you work in communications, there's no like bright line there, but you just sort of know it when you hit it and when you cross it. And, that's the value of having a really good editor. And I was lucky to have two very good editors across my process who helped me push me when they thought I wasn't revealing enough and who helped pull me back when they thought I was maybe being a little bit too gratuitous or snarky about other people. All right. Well, we're running to the end of the podcast here. We've been punishing ourselves enough. What's been the most fun thing? Like since you put it out, like what's been what what's made you feel the happiest, most rewarding? Well, obviously, getting the news that I made the New York Times bestseller list was incredible. And you know, you and I had live on a podcast. There's video of this, which is nice. I know. And I responded with my typical, you know, chill. Like I didn't scream and cuss a ton and almost vomit and fall down. But yeah, no, so that was super exciting. But really the feedback I've gotten has just been incredible because I wanted to write a book that was fun, that was accessible, that was honest. And I have just heard, I've heard from people of all ages. I've heard from Democrats. I've heard from people who work for extremely, extremely, extremely prominent Republicans. I've heard from people who are apolitical, who, you know, send me DMs on Instagram or Facebook, um, just about how much they love the book and how it's, you know, renewed their faith in politics or inspired them to get involved in it. Or it was something that they really identified regardless of their partisan affiliation. And, you know, that's what makes a book worth writing. And so that's been, the feedback has been extremely, extremely valuable validating. And for all the depressing stories I or realistic stories I had in there, I wanted it ultimately to be a book that hopefully inspires people to get involved in politics or stay involved in politics. And I've been really hardened to see that that's largely been the response that I've gotten. 
Well, that is so cool. So happy for me to hear. I'm so proud of you. I know your dad would be so proud of you. I'm so happy that we were able to kind of do all this together and, uh, you know, be each other's anxiety phone call uh, <laughs> after, you know, and the one cigarette wouldn't do the trick. And um, uh, it's been it's been awesome. I hope people that are aspiring writers or interested in our process got something valuable about this. Let's do this another time when we do more politics. Thank you, everybody, for dealing with me in the guest chair for two days. Uh, JVL will be back tomorrow. Big thanks to Liz Smith, Bakari Sellers, Alex Holder, Katie Cooper, Jonathan Siri Mose, and we'll do this all again tomorrow with JVL. Peace.